Romans chapter 12, the verses 1 through 2, page 1763. Romans 12, beginning the reading at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. May I add here the King James, which I think is better. This is your reasonable service. It's not talking about church worship, which we might read into it, but Monday through Saturday, serving God with our lives. And now verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Here's what we're going to do now. Look at Romans 12, verse 1, then Romans 12, verse 2, and then I'll take the point to which I think both verses are working up toward, be transformed by the renewing of your mind and try to give you guidance or model or help in how to do this. Some of you may need the help more than others, and I know I'm one who needs it, which is why these verses are precious to me. So let's get into the text then. I should say too, Romans 12, 1 and 2 are so full, I will not have the time to go into the verses the way I'd like to. So I'm going to reread the verses before going into them and do with voice what I do in my notes. I will write out a verse and the words I consider the key verse, uh, the key part of the verse, the key words, the, the phrases that really count, I'll make in big letters. So I'll see if I can do that in voice for you. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship or reasonable service. So we'll try to pick up on all words or most of them, but especially the key words there. 12.1, therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore. Answer, the apostle is drawing his conclusion from the first and second sections of Romans, the sin and salvation sections, and now he's entering the service section. Now, 
11 long chapters of some of the most profound literature, as well as inspired, but inspired and most profound literature in all of history, in my opinion, done, and the implications and applications of the sin salvation sections are dealt with in 12 and following. Therefore, I urge you, urge, encourage. This is important. This is central. This is absolutely essential. Once Lord Acton in England, as they were facing the Battle of Trafalgar, said to his soldiers, England expects that each person will do his duty today. Well, Romans 12:1 is urging you to do your Christian duty, even when that means onward Christian soldiers, your duty, whether pleasant or difficult. I urge you, brothers, and of course that means sisters too in the language of the time, in view of God's mercy, one word, mercy, to sort of summarize 11 long chapters, and I can't help but take a minute at it. There's one Hebrew word that is really too big to translate into any English word. It's chesed for those of you who know the language. And in the older versions, that word gets translated in such ways as loving kindness. Two words for one big word with its meaning. Loving kindness or tender mercies. The apostle is saying, I urge you, Christian brothers and sisters, in light of God's loving kindness and tender mercy, to do what? To offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now I know you know your Old Testament enough, but I think it's the key phrase here, so I'm going to spend some time with it. Living sacrifices. In Bible times, they would take the, well, to begin with, first fruits, the next, uh, a sacra, the next uh, uh, holiday after Passover, They'd bring the first of the fruits. One of my grandchildren in poor English called the first strawberries the biggest and bestest. And that's what the first fruits are. They brought those there. But to the temple, they would bring two and three-year-old, typically, animals. Now, I grew up on a farm. I don't even need to consult a commentary on what two and three-year-olds mean. An animal is most valuable at the time it begins its adulthood as an animal, and most of them are year two and year three. In other words, oh, and the Bible adds animals without blemish. God doesn't want seconds. So it's animals of the most valuable sort without blemish to the temple where they were killed was a gory mess where they killed the animals for sacrifice. And those dead animals were sacrificed to God. 
Now, why sacrifices? It's not obvious to us anymore, I guess, or at least to many of us. One of the most common theories, at least among non-believers, has a nice sounding name in Latin, do et dara, which means give to get. In other words, you give God the best of your flocks and herds to get something from them. I'm going to suggest that that theory is wrong and the truth comes closer to being just the opposite. You don't start with, God, I'm going to bribe you into giving me something. You start with God and his grace and goodness. God provided in his grace and goodness life and skills for the person whose flocks and herds they were, and God provided the birth and growth of the animals, and therefore you bring them for sacrifices not to get from God, but because God gave you and you are expressing your gratitude to God. See the difference between what I think is the truth and that false theory there? And so here we have these animals coming to the temple where they're killed. Now, if you'll permit a brief other reference here, I understand that all way too well. When I was little, Dad would go in the chicken coop, get a chicken. He could somehow feel if they weren't laying or were somehow not right for the herd anymore. Take the chicken out and with his axe, cut off the head. The chicken would flop around with nerves for a while. Watch that. I felt sorry for the chicken. And we were always gathering eggs, too. We didn't get pecked. We gathered the eggs, and we had to put them on a scale, large, medium, small, and through a light, if there was a bloody spot in, they were seconds. God doesn't want the small and the seconds. He wants the first and the best. So they killed the animals in sacrifice. But now, here's a difference. Those sacrifices pointed ahead to the sacrifice, namely Jesus on the cross. In other words, sacrifices were pre-Jesus incarnation and pre-Jesus crucifixion. So now things have changed. You don't bring animals to church to kill them anymore and sacrifice them. Because Jesus, the great sacrifice, the fulfillment of all Old Testament sacrifices, has come, the sacrifice has been made. It applies to you. We talked last week about being in Christ. And where Christ goes after atonement, resurrection, ascension, heaven, that's all in store for you and me. I mustn't speak too fast here. Remember last week I talked about explanation, application, and appreciation? In a way, the highest point of, sermon, of a sermon to me is appreciation. And I want you to appreciate that Christ's sacrifice has been made, and now there's something else. You and you living me and me living. You see, God could take us to heaven any time. He has his own time schedule, whether we like it or not. 
But right now you live. You woke up this morning breathing with a mind that works, senses like eyes that work, skills you have, you're living. And what Romans 12 is saying is, because of all that God has done through Christ that is now complete, you present yourself a sacrifice to God, but not dead, living. Today you were a living sacrifice by worshiping. This week you become a living sacrifice by living for God. You see the beauty, appreciate Romans 12, 1. Living sacrifices, holy. We'll quickly finish the verse. Holy means simply set apart. It can be a sacred word. Set apart to be special for sacred purposes that are primarily and first of all spiritual. That's you. A living sacrifice set aside for God's glory now, set aside for God, holy, and special, and having a sacred calling to be, most of all, a spiritual being. That's holy. Holy and therefore acceptable to God. If you wonder if you're acceptable to God, don't look for perfection in you. It isn't there and it isn't in me. I have to preach these verses at me. But I know that through Christ, the sacrifice, I'm called to live today. I don't know how long I'll live, but I'm alive today. And I'm to be holy and that's acceptable to God. Now there's your calling, my friends. Now we have to go on. I'm spending too long on the verses. Verse 2, listen again. I'll try to read it in such a way that what I think is the main point comes out. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's go through the verse. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Briefly, one John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. And we have these lists of worldliness, such as the works of the flesh in Galatians 5. Don't conform to that. It's sad when the church, by the way, follows the world by 20 years to a generation that whatever the world is into, the church is later, but I won't comment on that. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed. Let that word sink in a little bit and think of transformation. I used to work in a greenhouse when I was a young person, and one of our jobs was with the tomatoes in spring to go through and pick off, kind of icky work, the tomato worms. Now you may have had tomatoes with tomato worms in your gardens too. We had to step on them 
and squash out the innards. Never forget that. But such little creatures as tomato worms transform into beautiful butterflies. The word used here for transform is the same word used for Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was transfigured or transformed. And that's a little bit of a picture, a transfiguration of our spiritual bodies. But the idea here is God is calling on you who are called to be living sacrifices, holy and spiritual. God is calling on you to be transformed. Now maybe some of you, when you hear the word transformed, think of a transformer. I'm out of my line of specialty when I talk about transformers, so I won't. I know they do a lot of things and are very sophisticated and I could appear awful naive, awful quickly to you electricians, but a transformer, among other things, well, you know, they'll change AC, alternating current to direct current, other things too, but one thing a transformer will do, and that is take electrical current, voltage, and make the voltage go lesser, that's usually direct current, or greater. And what the word transformed is referring to here is there's something in you that you can use to transform, to become like a beautiful butterfly, not an ugly tomato worm, to become like more powerful electricity, more a living sacrifice for God. Again, appreciate the text, it's beautiful transformed. How now do you become transformed? The answer is by the renewing of your mind. I suppose that the basic transformation is heart or soul or spirit, but the apostle's speaking to Christians here, so he doesn't make that point. He makes this different point. We go from transformation from paganhood to Christianity. And then the next step is our mind. By the renewing of your mind. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus and you've got to take control of your mind. I'd like to read you something here that is certainly secular but I hope will make the point real clear comes from 1964. I worked in a factory then, heard this on the radio we listened to all day. And it's by an Earl Nightingale, who was a writer at the time of Why Stuff. Here's what he wrote once. The person who has no goal, who doesn't know where he's going, and whose thoughts must therefore be thoughts of confusion, anxiety, and worry, his life becomes one of frustration, fear, anxiety, and worry. And he thinks about nothing and he becomes nothing. How does it work? Why do we become what we think about? See, he's talking about mind now. 
Well, I'll tell you how it works as far as we know. Suppose a farmer has some land, and it's good fertile land. Now, I right away think of the farm where I farmed. The land gives the farmer a choice. He may plant in that land whatever he chooses. The land doesn't care. It's up to the farmer. We're comparing the human mind with the land because the mind, like the land, doesn't care what you plant in it. It will return what you plant. Now let's say that the farmer has two seeds in his hand. One is a seed of corn. The other, nightshade, a deadly poison. He digs two little holes in the earth and he plants both seeds, corn, nightshade. He covers the holes, waters, takes care of the land and plants, and what will happen? Invariably, the land will return what was planted. Remember, the Bible doesn't care. It will return poison just as well as wonderful abundance, like the corn. So, you want to use your mind to plant a right. Now that's the secular way of saying what I think, I never forgot that one, 1964 was a long time ago. That's a secular way of saying what I think our text is saying spiritually. You want to plant good in your mind. Now I can put that in more contemporary images. You've heard about computers maybe, Garbage in, garbage out. You don't want to put garbage in your minds, even though the average household has television on six to eight hours a day, filling minds with garbage. You want God in your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now that's 12 verse 2. What I'd like to do at this point is sort of give you, if I can, a model of how to put God in your mind so that God grows and you reap the fruit of godliness with your mind in the lead for all that you do in your life. Okay, let's take a couple texts. The first one is Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where we're told that we're made in the image and likeness of God. One time years ago, someone asked me to preach a sermon on positive thinking. Was I in favor of it? I said yes, as long as I can define it a little differently than Norman Vincent Peale in his best-selling book in the U.S. in the 50s the power of positive thinking, and as long as I can offer my input instead of the PMA, positive mental attitude people's input, and as long as I can be a little different than, say, Reverend Schuler and today's Reverend Osteen. Please don't peg me in those categories. Here's what's coming. Genesis 1, at verses 26 and 27, tells us we're made in the image of God, a little lower than God. Think of a photocopy machine and a photocopy. 
they used to say, and I think if anything it's improved, the photocopy is 90 to 95% as good as the original. Well, you are more like God, if I may say so, than like animals. If you swallow what they teach you with atheistic evolution, nothing to something to some one living creature such as a germ, up to you, a glorified germ, then all you are is glorified germs. No wonder you might not think highly of people. But if you think as God thinks, put in your mind, made in the image of God, then you have every reason in the world to see yourself as special and in a positive way, praise God for it. See what you want to put in your mind? Of course, you've got to know your Bible to do this. It's sad how ignorant of the Bible people are. I've got four examples here, and I've got time for the four, so we're going to go on. Genesis 50, 19 to 20. Joseph is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. When I get to heaven, the one I'd like to talk to the most is Moses, the lawgiver, and Joseph is number two. But in Genesis 50, 19 to 20, we have that great statement of providence. Joseph said to his brothers, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now I have a question for you. Do you believe in God's providence? Really believe? And in the words of Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. Even when you can't see. You know, I struggle with that sometimes, and I'll be the first one to tell you that this preacher doesn't always practice what he preaches. He has to pray frequently for strength to go from little faith to big faith. But if you believe these two things so far and put them deeply in your mind, made in the image of God, and God is the God of all providence. Read tonight, if you have time again, Heidelberg Catechism 10. Patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. If you believe that and you've got it deep in mind and are affirming it in your mind, then you are transforming your life by the renewing of your mind. Third guide or model, do you sometimes get discouraged and downhearted? The psalmist did. Here's 42 verse 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet Praise him, my Savior and my God. Have you ever heard the story of the Cherokee Indians' youth rite of passage to adulthood? Father took him to the forest at night, blindfolded him, leaves him alone. He has to sit on a stump all night, blindfolded, 
can't cry out for help, knows there are wild animals around and all kinds of dangers and all of that. The boy is terrified. He hears the night sounds, which aren't very nice sometimes, and all the rest, including the beasts that walk around and look at him, wondering even if some human will come along and harm him. And then in the morning, the father takes off the blindfold and says to the boy, I was right there sitting by you all night, but you proved you were a man. That's a little bit of a picture of what I'm trying to get at here. When we're discouraged, it's like we're blindfolded, the blinders are on, we're anxious, we're fearful. God's people go through those times. Martin Lloyd-Jones called it spiritual depression. Some of you have more of it than others. Few of you might have such great faith, you never struggle, but most of God's people struggle. But the point is that the God who made you in his image and likeness, the God of all providence, is also God Almighty who is your heavenly Father and with you. Read again the Heidelberg Catechism, this time Lord's Day 9 about God Almighty. I think we'll stop it there. Well, I don't think I'll quite stop it there. One more, a little more briefly maybe. Ephesians 3.20. God who is able to do abundantly above all that you act or think. And may I add 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you but what's common to mankind. And with the temptation, God will provide a way of escape. God who's able to do abundantly above everything that we ask or think. Sometimes we can't even imagine what God will do. When I was pastor in Sully, Iowa, there was a singing group and one of their songs was new to me. Maybe you've heard it, especially you musical people. God is bigger, bigger than all my troubles, bigger than anything that comes my way. God is bigger, bigger, bigger. That's the point of Ephesians 3.20. And even when temptations come, God will make a way of escape. Heard an Easter sermon once on Good Friday that said, if you're in the dumps, Wait three days, God can change things. He did make a legitimate point, I'll tell you. But the thing I'm saying to you now, sort of cumulatively, is God in, and you won't have garbage out. God into your mind, and God will come out in the form of godly thinking and godly living. That is in brief what Romans 12 one and two is starting with in its section on service. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, thank you for these wonderful verses and the terrific biblical teaching in it. And my hope and prayer is that every one of your people worshiping here may have heard, thus saith the Lord, through the two verses that we looked into with emphasis on be renewed by the transforming of your mind. Amen.
We close with 